Guardian Unlimited. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Islamophonic, another jaunt through Muslim life in Britain. This week we look at the Muslim community. Really there's no such thing because Muslims have different beliefs, practices, cultures and languages. They don't always like each other, let alone talk to each other. You only have to look at the proliferation of mosques catering for every conceivable minority to understand that we're some way of community cohesion. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. To set us off on our odyssey through Islam and our smorgasbord of schools of thought, we sneak a peek at Shi'ism. That was the chant in praise of Al-Abbas, a sound unique to Shia communities around the world. A conservative guest tells us that up to 25% of Britain's Muslim population are Shia. But who are they? And how do they feel about being a minority within a minority? Helping us to answer some of these questions is Dr. Sajad Rizvi from the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies at Exeter University. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Rizvi. Alaikum salam. Can you just clarify for us what Shias believe in? The term uh, Shia itself comes from uh, an Arabic term, uh, Shiat Ali, the partisans or the party of Ali. And perhaps the, the, the single most significant belief of the Shia relates to the nature of the succession to the Prophet. And that belief is that uh, the Prophet appointed on God's command his cousin Ali. That uh, succession then continued through the descendants of Ali, for example, in the 12 Ashi belief in 12 Imams, one after the other. And it's those Imams who are divinely appointed guides. They are the proper leaders of the community. It's to them that the community should turn in matters of theology and practice. Okay, Jazakallah for that. That set the scene a bit for us. Now, Yusuf Al-Khoi works for the Al-Khoi Foundation. It's an international charity helping Shia and non-Shia Muslims around the world. He's the grandson of Ayatollah Abul Qasim Khoi, who at one point was considered the premier leader of Shias across the world. I asked Yusuf to tell us a bit more about Shias living in Britain. The arrival of Shia community in the UK in the main occurred in the early 1970s with the arrival of refugees from um, Uganda, Idi Amin's expulsion, and in the late 70s arrivals from Iraq, Iran, followed by Afghanis during uh, the Afghani conflict. How well established are the different Shia communities? Well, some of them are particularly well established. Some of the Arab-Iranian communities are well established with major centers. The East African community, usually referred to as the Khojas, are particularly well established. You also have communities which still suffer um, lack of organization and language difficulties, problem of leaderships. So you have all kinds. How much connection is there with the different Sunni communities in Britain? Well, relationships are generally good. We have uh, working relationships with Sunni groups. A lot of the concerns for the Muslims are the same. There are some problems in universities where some extremist or fundamentalist groups, they do not like the Shias, but the slightest problem, we resolve it together. What are the practical differences between Sunnis and Shias? Turn the question into what are the 
common aspects between Sunnis and Shias, which is quite a lot. But there are obviously some differences in the detail on how do you pray, whether you pray Taraweeh or you don't. Uh, it is not really as significant as people would sometimes think. A lot of the differences are to do with history and the political aspect in the aftermath of the day of the Prophet, peace be upon him. So it actually means the differences are not very, very big. As a Shia, how do you feel about the sectarian violence in Iraq? Obviously, I feel very sad, and I have to say we need a good rethink within the Muslim communities. We need better ways of communicating with each other. We try to hide some of our problems, and then they suddenly appear in a burst of violence the way you see it. I am very encouraged that this uh, has not really had serious uh, ramifications for the community in this country. Shias and Sunnis continue, on the whole, to hold good relations in this country. What is good about being a Shia Muslim? What do you like about it? I think Shiism has the soul of the faith. It has developed as an opposition to oppression of the rulers. And in a way, it has safeguarded Islam from falling into the trap of certain rulers considering themselves caliphs or whatever, Traditionally, the spirit of Islam has been, especially Shia Islam, has been don't submit to unjust rulers and keep the faith alive. Dr Rizvi, Yusuf Al-Khari said there were tensions on campus between Sunni and Shia Muslims. Does this surprise you? Not at all. It's something that I've experienced myself many years back as a student. It's not surprising given the propaganda which has sort of been put out by the Saudis going back at least to the 70s across the Muslim world. And that particular vision of Islam is rather narrow. It's uh, rather totalitarian, it's uh, literalist, and it's particularly anti-Shi. You said that you'd experienced it yourself some way back. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, well, as an undergraduate, and this is, the, I think, the experience of most Shia undergraduates at most university campuses, often what happens, they're often introduced for the very first time to certain aspects of their faith. And if you get people who are trained in Saudi Arabia in particular saying this is what the nature of the faith is and the faith requires you to be wary of the Shia and to basically hate them, that's something which will have quite an important impact on the way people think. Yusuf played down the spiritual and practical differences between Sunni and Shia, saying it was more to do with politics and history. Do you think he's right to do that? Is that the way forward? To a certain extent, it is useful quite simply because He's quite right also in saying that um, as a minority and as a minority within a minority, we have uh, important common interests. However, at the same time, it's not sensible to hide and to cover over differences because they need to understand that their faith, whether it's Sunni or Shia, have been pluralistic going back to the classical period. It's never been the case that Islam has just meant one thing and one thing alone in so, at the very least, understanding that there are other Muslims who are Shia and they have these certain beliefs and these practices which are slightly different, and recognizing them within the fold of Islam is very important. It's a very important lesson in many ways in citizenship. Yusuf also spoke about um, Shiism representing or being a response against injustice and oppression and tyranny. How do you think this comes across in 
behaviour or perspective? Well, to a certain extent, it is useful quite simply because uh, in certain contexts, and particularly the, the Iranian Revolution in 79, it's manifested in, in revolutionary behaviour, in actually toppling or overthrowing oppressive regimes and tyrannies. Historically, it's, there has been an element of oppositional behaviour amongst Shia communities who are often marginalised. And there's also a very strong idea of what is right and wrong generally, not just in, within one's own particular community, which is often considered to be a basic moral imperative within Shia Islam. It's the imperative known as commanding the good and forbidding the evil, which of course is is a general Muslim imperative, but is often uh, much more stressed in the Shia tradition. Yusuf al-Khoi said that Shiism held the soul of Islam. What do you think he meant by that? Well, if you go back to what I was talking about earlier, about the line of the imams from the Prophet's family, one of the most important aspects of Shia Islam is, is this element of devotion to the family of the Prophet and the sort of intense love for the Prophet, which is then dispersed and spread out throughout the community and beyond. So to a large extent, love and compassion are, are central features and, and virtues within the way the faith is conceived. The other is related to spiritual practices. In, in Shia communities, there are far more spiritual practices, which are both personal and also congregational, at the very least on a weekly basis. So there is much more of a continual spiritual link in Shia communities than there tends to be in Sunni ones. Now, it was the killing of Hussein that led to a schism in Islam, creating the two main sects, Sunni and Shia. Hussein's death and its commemoration is known as Ashura, and it's arguably the most significant event in the Shia calendar. It's a period of intense grief and mourning, with laments and chants recited to beating drums. Passion plays form part of Ashura, but it can also involve self-flagellation. Although this site is more commonly seen in places such as Iran, Guardian reporter Paul Lewis was invited to witness an Afghan Shia community celebrate Ashura in Birmingham. I wasn't actually aware of what kind of ceremony it was going to be until I got there. And I followed a car into the depth of an industrial estate in, in Birmingham and then walked through the doors into... Um, it really looked like another country, to be honest. <laughs> was it a warehouse? Was it, it, was a, bare, it, was, it was decorated? It was a kind of warehouse, and the guys had put up decorations around, and there was a kitchen next to it, so okay. there was food constantly coming out. Mm -hmm. And the organisers had, had invited MPs and representatives from the Home Office and community leaders. None of them came, mm. so it was just kind of me and, um, and about a 1,000 men um, ranging from the age of, you know, the oldest would have been about 60. Right. But the youngest, I'd say about six years old. So what happened? Well, first of all, uh, there were prayers. Then they brought out these chains and took off the tops and wearing, wearing tops with holes, two holes in the back um, and water. And then obviously um, the kind of self-flagellation began. <laughs> So everyone was flagellating themselves? Yeah. A thousand men? Yeah. I mean, some people initially were kind of a bit reluctant. I mean, not everyone jumped into the circle. Uh, but you know, as the night progressed, more and more people did. And there were two sessions, one in the afternoon and another, another later in the evening. Was this a circle that was formed by all of the men or just a group of the men? I would say it was four circles. Um, people sat down and then people would alternate and take turns to go in the middle 
and use the chains. And what was the atmosphere like? It was amazing, actually. It was really amazing. It was kind of... I know, when you're a journalist, you find yourself in all these different situations and scenarios, and the best ones are the ones you don't expect. But this, it just kind of takes you to another world, because it's really difficult not to get kind of sucked in with the chanting and the rhythm. It was constant rhythm for kind of several hours of the same rhythmic chanting. Dr Rizvi, blood pouring, wounds, children hitting themselves. It sounds disturbing, but can you put this event into some context for us? The practice of flagellation, which has a, a range, I mean, it goes from just placing the hand on, on the chest or, or beating the chest all the way to using knives and swords on the head. It has a number of different symbolic meanings. One is it links back to what we were discussing earlier about protest against oppression, and it's seen as a an act of protest against oppression, and particularly the oppression that Imam Hussein himself suffered. But there's also an element, a, a cathartic element, of actually trying to to share uh, in the pain and the, the suffering that they had. In similar ways, for example, to how Catholics commemorate Holy Week in, in places like Spain. The Shia community that Paul Lewis encountered were Afghans in Birmingham. There are several thousand of them there. Reza Shah Ahmed was one of the organisers of that event. He's been in this country for seven years, and I spoke to him earlier this week. Reza, can you tell me a bit about what kind of resources do you have? Do you have mosques? Are there no, schools? No, we don't have any place. Sometimes we rent a community centre, sometimes we ask the other mosques if they are available for some ceremonies, or most of the time we use our houses. What kind of problems does that cause, the fact that you don't have a regular place of worship? We don't have anybody to go to them and to ask them to do this kind of things for us, like uh, to give us a place or to give us to help us or to uh, help us to settle ourselves here. So it's very hard. What kind of help do you get from other Shia communities? The problem is the language. We cannot uh, communicate very easily with them. And uh, everybody, they have their own uh, culture, they have their own uh, agenda of their own jobs, what they want to do. So if you go as a new person, you are a new person for them because they are already in uh, settled in mm. uh, some way. Is there a class difference as well? Definitely. They are a settled community and mm. we are newborn community. We are in need of lots of lots of things that they are already they have. A level. Reza, what kind of jobs do Afghans have in the West Midlands? Do they have professional positions? Very few professionals, and uh, most of them they are uh, in factory. They are in uh, working in, on the field, and they are working in uh, a security officer. They are working most. Most of them, they are workers, not uh, professionals. When we talk about a Muslim community in Britain, do you feel part of that community? I have to feel. I am a Muslim and I am living in Britain and I'm, I have to feel like that. And if and this is uh, my new place, my new home, my new uh, life, my new challenge. Um, in Britain, most Muslims, I would say about... I think it's about 80%, 85% are Sunni Muslims. There are only about 10 or 15% that are Shia Muslims. What's it like being in a minority? We believe a little bit different than them. And uh, we think we are better and they think that they are better. They have the power, they can shout more. And 
we are a little bit less powerful and our voices a little bit the volume is lower than them. Do you think new communities such as the Afghan communities will become more prosperous? Definitely. It is always when you are newborn and then you become uh, teenage and then you become adult. And uh, we are um, in the beginning of that road. Definitely. We'll have a good time in the future. Still with me is Dr. Sajal Rizvi from Exeter University. We just heard from Reza Sher Ahmed. He's part of a smaller emerging Shia community in Britain. How can well-established communities help those who are less well-off? Well, the first thing they can do is share resources. Some of their centres, their Imam Bhargars, as they're called in Urdu, go back to the 60s. They could certainly offer their facilities. But one thing which is happening is that although the different Shia communities around the country are, are divided on linguistic grounds, Arabic, Persian, Turkish, Urdu, Gujarati, or whatever, there's an emergence in more recent times of uh, communities which are which are multi-ethnic, which focus their rituals and their practices around the use of English. Um, this is particularly important for uh, the younger generations in particular. And um, uh, there are particular centers, groups, which are, are pretty much focused on the use of English to uh, spread understanding of the faith and includes uh, the Muharram rituals and the the commemoration of Ashura in English, um, including uh, the, the chanting of English um, verse along with flagellation. So I think things are, are gradually uh, changing. Dr. Rizvi, is community cohesion a realistic prospect for Britain's Muslim population? Um, I think it's uh, realistic insofar as uh, people can understand that they have, um, to a certain extent, common experiences and common values which they need to pull um, to find a voice and to find an identity within Britain. Communities within Britain and also more widely in in Western Europe and North America have opportunities which communities, say, in Iraq or Pakistan do not, which is that they can think outside of their particular historical and and political context and uh, forge links which they might not be able to do in Muslim-majority societies. You just talked about events in the wider Muslim world. Let's look at the sectarian violence overseas. How does that affect Shia communities in this country? It affects them because they see their co-religionists, their fellow Shia, being killed. And so it it is having a certain element of of an impact. These sorts of issues are really a test for whether the Muslim communities in Britain really have any serious leadership. Uh, it's really up to leaders, whether they're religious or civic leaders, to come together and say, look, you know, this, this violence is not what we're about. Um, we have a lot more in common, as Yusuf says, than necessarily what divides us. And we're in a particular context in which we do need to make common grounds, common cause, not just amongst Muslims, but amongst others in the wider community in Britain. Dr. Sajad Rizvi from Exeter University. Jazakallah for joining us. Thanks. Hope you've enjoyed listening to the show. If you've any thoughts or comments on Shiism, let us know on our blog. That was Islamophonic. It was produced by Francesca Panetta and presented by me, Riaz Atbat. Jazakallah for listening and until next week, stay halal. Guardian Unlimited.